This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So today is Saturday the 6th of May 2023 at Yarrawarra. Happy meeting place. So, uh, this morning we're going to continue with the theme on suffering and the end of suffering. I wanted to, uh, I shifted the Dharma talk to this morning because there's not much time left on the session. So, I've tried to distill, distill the essence of some of the teachings on how to approach suffering and uh, often it can just be a word or a phrase what we call in Zen a turning word just something that stays with you even if it's just one word that stays with you uh, throughout the rest of uh, today and tonight it will be helpful because sometimes the Teachings can sound a bit abstract, but in essence, when we're using the word see, trying to see this, we're talking about experiential seeing, experiential learning. So, not something we necessarily, you know, it's helpful to have some theoretical understanding, but the understanding comes from the seeing experientially. We need to clarify and understand suffering experientially. And so I've been trying to distill, and there is, you will find in the spiritual traditions originating in India, there are basically two approaches to suffering. And You'll find them in, in Buddhism. You'll also find them in Advaita Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, and other traditions. Um, they're sometimes referred to as the path of exclusion and the path of inclusion. Or the path of... Uh, the Sanskrit uh, word neti neti, not this, not that, which is the path of exclusion and discrimination. Or the tantric path, which is the path of um, non-separation. Both approaches, I think, end up in the same place. Uh, And in the... I often felt there may have been contradictory, but I've come around to viewing them as complementary. Some practitioners 
prefer one over the other. I think it's good to experiment with both and see which works best for you. I think it's nice to bring them together as well. I think they both work together as an integration. I'll talk for a while and then I'll finish with um, a writing by Ken Wilbur to illustrate the, 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 the neti neti approach. And then I'll, I'll also give a reading from a, a piece by Barry Majid, which illustrates the, the tantric approach, although he wouldn't call it, you'll find it in Zen. Tantra is, um, again, as it has its origins in India, and uh, it influenced both the Chan tradition to China and also the Tibetan traditions. And you'll find Tantra talked about a lot more in Tibetan Buddhism, but it was also present in, even in Japanese uh, Zen Buddhism as well. Sometimes you may, I'll, I'll talk about the path of um, exclusion or discrimination first because it's a kind of, can, it can, um, sometimes it might be good to see that as an intermediate step towards the, the path of um, inclusion or the path of love. As I mentioned earlier on, I think last night, or this morning. Um, <clears throat> most of you would be familiar in Mahayana Buddhism with the notion of the two truths, which originates with Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, who was a second or third century Buddhist teacher, very highly regarded. Some people even refer to him as the second Buddha. And uh, again, this is just a dis dis distillation, so I'm just, I'm just taking the key elements from these things. Uh, but um, so the two truths basically are the, the, the conventional world is the first truth, the relative world, the world of conventions, the world that is brought into being by language, the world of subject and object, the world of things, the world of cause and effect, the world that we live in most of the time. Then the, this, the, the second truth is the truth of ultimate reality, which is uh, basically in the, in the world of conventional reality, things have a relative existence. In the world of ultimate reality, there are no things. There is nothing that really exists. There is no thing literally that exists. The world of his work is full of negations, so in a way it's almost impossible to say anything in a positive way about the world of ultimate reality that is beyond thoughts, beyond words, it's inconceivable, it's beyond concepts. That's what has to be seen. But we use, we use images and metaphors to help us think about it. So, uh, space, 
is a metaphor uh, which is not ultimate reality, but it, it can uh, often it's a metaphor that's used vastness, space. And uh, so sometimes we have to use these images and metaphors to talk about this stuff. But ultimately, it cannot be talked about. So, in the world of conventional truth, things exist. The subject-object duality. From the conventional viewpoint, there is delusion and enlightenment, uh, beings and Buddhas. From ultimate truth perspective, no things exist. There is no delusion, no enlightenment, no beings and no Buddhas. Nobody was ever born and nobody ever dies. And reality is inconceivable beyond words. Hence, when the, uh, the Dharma was transmitted to Mahakasyapa by the Buddha, so Mahakasyapa, one of the members of the assembly, is seen as being the, 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 the first successor in the lineage of Zen Buddhism. In the Zen Buddhist lineage, we start off with Shakyamuni, then go to Kasyapa, Maha Kasyapa. Maha just means great. Can't remember what Kasyapa means. And it goes through the Indian lineage. There's about 32 teachers in the Indian lineage, ending with Bodhidharma, who was um, a Brahmin prince, I think. And Bodhidharma brought the teachings from India to China, and about the the 4th century, something, 5th century. And then you have all the Chinese ancestors following from Bodhidharma. And then you have <coughs> Dogen in the 13th century traveling a long way to China from Japan and coming back. And then we have the lineage of the Japanese ancestors. And that for us, that accumulates in Taizan Mazumi Roshi, who then transmitted to Choko Beck, who then transmitted to Barry Majid, who then transmitted to me. So that's our lineage. So in the story, which most of you are familiar with, uh, it's a koan in the Mumenkan collection, the Gateless Gate collection, these are a story where the Buddha simply holds up a flower and Mahakasyapa smiles. And that's it. The mind is transmitted, the Buddha mind transmitted from Shakyamuni to Mahakasyapa. Total silence, not a word was said. And you often get these koans and Vimalakotri, um, where the response might just be silence. The ultimate teaching. That's when the, uh, you know, the American uh, composer John Cage had one of his famous concerts where he just came to the piano I think, near the audience, and then just 
sat in silence. Um, he also wrote some really interesting guided meditations, John Cage. Interesting chap. I don't know much about him, but yeah. So the two truths, and then then there's the third, so you've got one, two, and three is the integration of the two truths. So we don't want to be stuck in conventional reality for the rest of our lives and identification with our body-mind and and we die. We do die, but the Buddha saw something else, realized something else, which is the second truth. But then we don't stop at the second truth. We come back into the world of conventional reality, as we have to. You can't stay on top of the mountain. And the, well, you could possibly stay in the cave for a few years, Bodhidharma did. But uh, we have to ultimately come back and be of some use. And uh, so, in some ways, you know, getting some insight and getting some, seeing something about the, the second truth is important. But then the rest of our life is about trying to integrate the two. Because, you know, the, we've had years and years of conditioning into conventional reality and it goes very deep, it goes into our bodies. And uh, so um, the process of integrating this is probably it's a lifetime. I don't think anybody can totally completes it, totally. Um, so the, the third aspect of this then is the integration of the two truths, the two worlds, the phenomenal world, the world of form, the world of the 10,000 things, the world of cause and effect, and the essential world. Um, so we're still subject to cause and effect. The Buddha was still subject to cause and effect. You know, He, uh, he ate the meat which was poisoned and he died, cause and effect. We're not free of cause and effect. We're always in that kind of world. Um, but the essential world the world of what we might call the formless world, the world of oneness. But the two worlds are identical, just two different perspectives on the one reality. And uh, so it's the perspective that changes. Realization is seeing into the essential world. Integration is then continuing to deepen that realization on an ongoing basis, and that's partly what the koans are about as well. But we don't do koans; we do, we try and do this work just using the koans of our everyday lives. To to and precepts can be really good too. Uh, I mean, precepts are like koans anyway, so it's a kind of way in which we integrate. And. Uh, so we need to live in the conventional world and at the same time be attuned to the essential world so that we're able to respond with some insight into the essential world without getting totally caught back in into the conventional world. But we do, we do get, obviously we do get pulled back into it. So I guess this is, this is an ongoing process and the, uh, the world of conventional reality, the world of the thinking mind, is a very sticky spider's web, which is hard to free ourselves from. We keep getting stuck in it. So, a um, couple of things. So, we're starting off... Um, um, what's this? 
So from the perspective of the essential world, Buddhism, as you know, teaches the non-existence of a personal self. There is no self from that perspective, which is the owner of our internal world, the owner of our thoughts and feelings. Neither is there an owner of the objects in the external world, such as houses and cars. Um, this notion of ownership is entirely conventional. So are boundaries. But in the conventional world, these, these entirely conventional, illusory things are defended with guns and bombs and have a devastating effect, right? So even though the ownership is an illusion, it's a very real illusion, very hard to break ourselves free from that notion of ownership. Even more so in our culture of capitalism, founded on private property. So the notion of ownership is instilled into us from little children onwards. The sense of self develops, it's, you know, my toy and uh, it's me in the mirror, etc., etc. Um, and it, it obviously works on not just an individual level, but on a collective level, nation, state, global level. So Buddhism targets this illusion and, uh, and says that if we can clearly see the non-existence of the owner, this is the absolute key in bringing an end to suffering. Because what Buddhism means by suffering, and not just Buddhism, other traditions as well, is the feeling that there's, there's some I or me that's suffering. Right? Suffering is the feeling that I'm suffering. So no matter, so this first approach, the approach of discrimination, which is often described as self-inquiry because it targets the self and we need to inquire experientially into the self because that's the heart of suffering. It doesn't matter, we can... We don't worry about the causes, the multiple causes that we think we're suffering for. But the one thing that all suffering has in common is me. So it's me that's suffering. So Buddhism goes, the heart of suffering is to, if we can just pull out that, that root of me, we target that. So we don't target suffering so much, we target the me, the illusionary me. So at the heart of suffering, is the non-existent self. A couple of principles, guidelines. Do not try and get rid of suffering. Do not try and get rid of suffering. Why is that? 
Second principle, do not try and get rid of the separate self. This relates to the first principle. Trying to get rid of the separate self only perpetuates the separate self because who's trying to get rid of the separate self? The separate self is trying to get rid of the separate self. It will only perpetuate the separate self endlessly. So give up all attempts to get rid of suffering. What is taught in the teachings is to see into the illusion of self, see clearly that this suffering that you're going through is not owned by anybody. So the the ending of suffering is a byproduct of that. It's not it's not something we target, it's just a byproduct, something which falls away. It's like a headache you have in the morning which disappears in the evening and you don't know why it's disappeared. The suffering reduces over time the more insight we get into this, the more we clarify this experientially. The suffering drops away. So the first method, which is often referred to in the literature, the spiritual literature, is self-inquiry. Again, you'll find self-inquiry in Buddhism and also in other traditions. And uh, often in Buddhism, especially in you, you get glimpses of it in Zen Buddhism, you find it more in Tibetan Buddhism, it's called unfindability. It's the unfindability of this me, or this I that we think suffering, you can never find it. So, there's a reference to it in, um, in case 41 of the Gateless Gate. And um, the case 41 is where Bodhidharma, sitting in his cave, the second ancestor, standing outside the cave, is so desperate to get rid of his suffering, he even cuts off his arm to show his dedication or his commitment. So Bodhidharma finally comes out and talks to him. And um, the, the um, second ancestor says to the Bodhidharma, your disciple's mind has no peace. I beg you, Master, please put it to rest. And Bodhidharma says, bring me your mind and I will put it to rest. And basically he's saying, well, see if you can find your mind, go away and inquire into yourself. So he goes away, finally he comes back and says, Master, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, I have completely put it to rest for you. Right?
So that's, the, that's an example of when you can't find it, you keep looking for it. You can't find it, you get some experiential understanding. What is this? You know, what is this when, I, when someone, you know, I, um, I say, oh, it's a beautiful day today. Your awareness hears the words, it's a beautiful day today. Say, yeah, it's a beautiful day today. Okay, you go on, your, on, your, on with your day. And later on, um, somebody else says something about you which is a little bit critical, and all of a sudden something rises up, and you feel hurt. So that's, that's the point in which you start to inquire. Well, what's, what's this all about? What's this hurt feeling that's coming up? Who's feeling hurt? See if you can find the I or the me that's experiencing hurt. See if you can find it. In some ways, uh, suffering is not a bad thing. Um, In the same way that pain alerts us to uh, something going on in the body here which I need to pay attention to. Suffering is kind of like the equivalent for the mind. Something going on here which I need to pay attention to. So suffering is, 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 a, is, a, is like pain to the body. You need to stop and look and inquire. So you, you can't heal the suffering the same way as we might heal pain in the body. You heal the suffering of the mind through experiential insight seeing clearly that there is no you or I or me that's suffering. When we see clearly that, then the disappearance of suffering, as I said, is a byproduct, not a goal. Because if you make it a goal, you perpetuate the suffering. Um, so this process of dis- the first approach is this neti neti discrimination, not this, not that approach, which is kind of like it's a good way of of you know you would would, would have heard me say it's a it's a process of negation or subtraction. So what is it that's being superimposed? The conventional reality is what we're identified with, like we identify with the thoughts, with the feelings, and we take that to be ourself. We take the thoughts and feelings to be ourself. And that, is the, that is I awareness. The awareness that I am identifies with the thoughts and feelings and loses itself in the thoughts and feelings and identifies as a thought and a feeling. It forgets what it is. So this process of sort of stepping back and saying, well, I am aware of my thoughts, but if I can be, and my thoughts are coming and going all the time, so I can't be my thoughts because they're coming and going all the time. And 
Same with my feelings. They're coming and going all the time. I'm, I'm aware of my feelings, but they're coming and going all the time. So this process of subtraction or exclusion goes on. You know, people often use the metaphor of you know, taking off all the clothing of all your identities, all your thoughts, all your feelings. People sometimes use the metaphor of a room. So like the, um, there's all, all the furniture in the room but we're not the furniture, we're the kind of space in the room, but you can't see the space, you can't touch the space. But you, if you take, a, take all the furniture out of the room, there's still the space, which is, has no walls, no walls in the Heart Sutra, no hindrance, it's boundless, no limit. So you're just uh, subtracting all the time. Who am I? Well, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings. Who am I? You keep asking that question, that's why in the the, the classical question in self-inquiry is, who am I, really? Um, so, I will read you Ken Wilber's piece of writing on that, which gives you an idea, again, of what that approach is about. Okay, this is called, I am not my body. So this is what Ken, Ken Wilber wrote. I have a body, but I am not my body. I can see and feel my body, and what can be seen and felt is not the true seer. My body may be tired or excited, sick or healthy, heavy or light, but that has nothing to do with my inward eye. I have a body, but I am not my body. I have desires, but I am not my desires. I can know my desires, and what can be known is not the true knower. Desires come and go, floating through my awareness, but they do not affect my inward eye. I have desires, but I am not desires. I have emotions, but I am not my emotions. I can feel, sense my emotions, and what can be felt and sensed is not the true feeler. Emotions pass through me, but they do not affect my inward eye. I have emotions, but I am not emotions. I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. I can know and intuit my thoughts, and what can be known is not the true knower. Thoughts come to me and thoughts leave me, but they do not affect my inward eye. I have my thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. I am what remains, a pure centre of awareness, an unmoved witness of all these thoughts, emotions, feelings and desires. And uh, if you consult the work of Dan Siegel, who's a contemporary psychiatrist, psychotherapist, neuroscientist. He uses the, the, what he calls the wheel of awareness to make a similar point. So at the centre of the wheel is the hub, which is the awareness, the pure awareness. And then we have the spokes, a spoke of attention, which goes to the rim of the wheel where you find the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the perceptions. So the awareness 
the center of the hub is, is the knower, that which knows. Sometimes the, the Buddha is sometimes referred to as, as the one who knows. So it's the, or sometimes even the, the word prajna or wisdom can be taken and in, interpreted in that way. So the, the, everything that we can be aware of is impermanent, it's constantly changing. But the wheel at the centre is the constant, that which doesn't change, the knower of the known. Okay. The, so that's the first approach. Now, that works for some people, it might not work for everybody. The, uh, it doesn't work for uh, some people. So the second approach is, you could, it's called, sometimes you call it the tantric approach or the path of love or inclusion, the path of non-separation. And um, so in this approach, we go in the other direction and uh, we embrace, we open up to the feelings we go into the heart of the feeling and um, we open ourselves completely to the feeling till we can say there's no resistance left anymore to the feeling. We turn towards the feeling because we were talking yesterday about really resistance being another word for suffering and uh, the separate self is the activity of resistance. So in this approach we're actually wanting to gradually be willing to experience whatever this moment is. And Zazen practice helps us with that. To just be whatever this moment is. And this is one of the things Joko was famous for in her teachings. Don't move away from anxiety, move towards the anxiety. Go into the anxiety. Thoughts can drop away, just go into the sensation of anxiety, go to the heart of the anxiety, or go into the heart of the anger, let the, the thoughts drop away, the judgments drop away, just go into the sensation of the anger. And if we can do that without any resistance, that's the end of suffering, from that point of view. There is no one suffering, we're totally one with the sensation, with the feeling, there's no longer any sense of a me that's anxious. We just become the anxiety. There's no one experiencing the anxiety. There's no separation. It's a bit like Velcro. We have to, we have to kind of like see clearly that the, the, the thoughts and the beliefs are stuck with the sensations. We have to unst unstick them. Then we can see, then we can go into the heart of the thought what is a thought? A thought is not a feeling. Thought's basically insubstantial. Same as a belief. If you see right clearly into it from an experiential point of view, what's a belief? So, this is the other path. It takes, it takes time and, uh, and it's because it's, our default position is to want to get rid of uncomfortable feelings. Um, and there is a little kind of, um, kind of little 
checking question, which I think is really, really, take note of this, I think it's a really nice. Um, this is a checking question to see if you're in resistance or whether you're non-separate from this moment. And you can use this question to check on a regular basis where you're at. Are you in resistance or are you non-separate? This question will let you know if resistance is present. So, if what you are currently experiencing right now was going to be what the rest of your life would be like, would that be okay with you? If what you are currently experiencing right now was going to be what it was like for the rest of your life, would that be okay with you? If you answer yes to that, then there's an absence of resistance. If you can't answer yes to this, there's some resistance present. Again, um, there's a section in one of Joko's books, I can't remember which one, where she goes through, you know, would it be okay with you if your, if, if your leg was broken, you know? Would it be okay with you if you went blind? Would it be okay with you if this or this or that? And it gets more severe all the time. So there is a certain, like, I'm not, you know, I don't think we can necessarily always be 100% free of resistance, right? But... The more we can free ourselves of resistance, the better. So the um, going into the emotion, approaching the feeling, going into the heart of the feeling and taking our refuge there. We find our refuge in the heart of, it, of anger. We find our refuge in the heart of anxiety. We find our refuge in the heart of fear. It's non-separation from anger, non-separation from fear. <coughs> Non-separation from anxiety is the ending of suffering. There's nobody suffering anymore. You're totally one with them. And um, so Barry wrote a piece called um, I have uh, this, this is a Barry's piece which, which he wrote as a, an alternative to Ken Wilber's piece. Barry doesn't like Ken Wilber very much. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> So this is Barry's, um, hang, hang on, let me get down a bit, where is it? Okay, this is his, I am my body, okay. I am my body, a living, breathing body with all its physical sensations of comfort and discomfort, relaxation and tension, changing each moment with each inhalation and exhalation, dependent each moment on the air I breathe and the environment which sustains my life. I am desires, my appetites, my needs for love and attachment, my ambitions and my ideals. In each moment, I may experience satisfaction or lack fullness or emptiness, learning gradually to distinguish my needs from my wants, the conditions for my flourishing from the fleeting effects of gratification. I am my emotions, my love and my anger, my sadness and my joy, 
my calmness and anxiety, moment after moment, reflecting my inescapable dependence on others and my vulnerability to the vicissitudes of their attention. I am my thoughts, which pass through my awareness, moment after moment, like clouds through the sky, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not. Whatever their content, I can recognize them as thoughts, part of the ongoing flow of my consciousness, a necessary part of what it feels like me to be neither banished nor suppressed, but acknowledged in their passing. I am my intention to practice the values and ideals of the Buddha way, which are not of my own creation, but are passed down to me through generation of students and teachers, on whom I depend for the forms and discipline and understanding that make practice possible. I am simultaneously the product of that tradition, its manifestation in the present, and its shaper for the future. I am a whole person, whose body, desires, emotions, thoughts, intentions, and awareness are all inseparable from my Buddha nature, all continually manifesting their inherent interdependence, impermanence, and perfection, just as they are right here and right now. Perhaps what's not clear in the Ken Wilbur piece, and um, what brings these two approaches, I think, to a pretty similar place in the end, is that you start off by this, 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 this distinguishing of uh, awareness from that which we are aware of is, the, is, 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 is an intermediate step in that approach, but it, 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 it culminates in the realization that the knower, that is awareness or consciousness, is inseparable from the known, and the known is inseparable from the knower. So the... Again, it comes back to a oneness, um, a non-separation. And... Uh, so the two paths can actually come together in that way. And so then you go on this path of really embracing all of your experience in that way as we talked about in that going into the heart of a feeling. Um, and that's also the path of love. The, the, so the path of discrimination or exclusion can then move into the path of inclusion and love. But it's, it can be helpful to, to see clearly there that you're not your thoughts and feelings to begin with, that, that kind of an intermediate step. So they're kind of um, just little uh, trying to distill the different approaches, these two different approaches to the to the ending of suffering. <laughs>